couple of announcements before we get started. The uh, first is to remind uh, everyone that this uh, weekend we're going to have uh, our men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning at 7.30. Uh, if you haven't signed up, I think we've had a good response. Uh, somewhere around 40 or so uh, should be here, which is good. We've invited some of the other churches. I talked to Raphael today, and he's looking forward to it. So this should be something something interesting this weekend, uh, something uh, a little bit different from what we've done before, but I think everybody will enjoy uh, meeting him, and he'll have a uh, be interesting to hear his kind of his story as well as some of the things he has to say. Also, uh, that will be 7.30 until probably somewhere close to 9, 8.30 to 9 on Saturday morning. And then we have a deacons meeting when that's over with. Then the next Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, we're having a meeting for those interested in helping with uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship, trying to see if we can pull together a team to have a good news club at one of the uh, nearby schools in the Spring Branch area. Then on July 4th, a reminder, we're going to have a cookout at 4.30, and then at 6 p.m. that night, Bible class. So that's going to be a, a time change for us uh, on that one particular uh, particular night. And then the boxes that go to Jim Myers, deadline for that's August, August the 4th. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we can come together this evening. We are thankful for the freedom that we have to teach your word, freedom to boldly proclaim the truth of your word and to take our stand on it and to proclaim the good news of the gospel, that there's forgiveness of sins, that there is eternal life, and it's available uh, freely. All that is necessary is for us to accept that gift by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Father, we pray for us this evening as we study your word that as we do this, we might uh, come to a further understanding of the realities of life in this fallen world, that we might come to understand your power and provision, and that we have been given a spirit, not of fear, but of pow- uh, power and courage, and that God the Holy Spirit is greater in us than anything in the world, in the devil's system. And Father, we pray for your guidance and direction in our study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. We're in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and we'll probably cover just a few verses this evening, 
starting with uh, verse 6, or actually starting in verse um, 16 and going down through uh, 24, somewhere in there, 20 to 24, uh, because we need to take some time looking at this episode with the slave girl who is the fortune teller and talking a little bit about issues related to demonism, demon possession, demon influence, and how uh, that impacts uh, believers and the powers that we have. And there's a lot of confusion on that today. This is all part of a broader study on the angelic conflict or spiritual warfare And this is one of several groups of doctrines today that are uh, in popular uh, popular teaching is often misrepresented in Scripture. There's a lot of misrepresentation because in in the last century, uh, so much Bible teaching has been influenced by experience, where people think they have experience with experiences with something, whether it's experiences personally, whether it's experienced through uh, tales of other people, whether it's uh, uh, whatever the circumstances might be, and then they base their doctrine beliefs on that experience. And this can be, uh, for, in, for, uh, for example, it can be in the realm of science. Scientist goes out, studies the rock layers in a, in a strata layer, studies the fossils, comes to certain conclusions based on his limited knowledge, limited framework, and constructs a, uh, a narrative related to how those fossils were laid down and how life evolved. And so that's based ultimately on experience. Now, usually scientists say, no, 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 that's not experience, that's science. But it is. It's a form of experience because they're interpreting it on the finite basis of their, of the experience of the human race. And so that just, it, with the problem with all empiricism is that one, it, all it takes is one new piece of information to destroy huge castles and fortresses of ideas because that there's always one piece of information that can invalidate everything uh, in the foundation of what's already been constructed. It's only when we come to experience by evaluating it on the basis of the information God's given us that we can come to know truth. And the best example I have of this comes from the Bible, that of all the things that Adam and Eve could learn from observing the creation that God gave them as he placed them in the Garden of Eden and said, I have given you all of these trees. You can eat from the fruit of all of these trees without any problem. Uh, There was one piece of information that was crucial, and that was one tree was prohibited, and if they ate from it, instantly they would die spiritually. And so that was the one issue. They couldn't learn that empirically. But yet that one piece of information shaped their in, their interpretation and understanding of everything else in the garden. There was one thing that was wrong that was that they were uh, uh, forbidden to uh, to eat from. And so the same is true for us. We may learn many, many things that are true about something, but there may be one piece of information that is missing, and the possession of that one piece of information may change the total way in which we uh, interpret and understand everything about our experience. 
And one of the hardest things for us as believers or anybody in any kind of argument is to challenge somebody on the basis of their experience. People say, well, I was in China and I was witnessing to somebody and they said they were a believer in Christ and then they started manifesting all this, these demonic traits. So obviously Christians can be demon-possessed. I mean, that some form of that narrative is very, very common. And then you have others that talk, want to extrapolate everything to always identify problems in terms of evil spirits. And that's true. That is a component in everything in creation because of the angelic rebellion against God. But the Bible doesn't present everything that way. We understand human volition, human interaction, and, all, and on the other side, there are too many Christians who want to limit everything to human interaction and human circumstances, not recognizing that the, the influence of the demonic. So there's, a, there's a, a balance there between overloading our senses by saying everything is related to demons, everything is related to evil spirits, everything is related to Satan, and... Uh, and that everything is just related to human uh, negative volition and the, and the sin nature. Ultimately, it's true. All evil comes from Satan. So in some sense, we can talk about Satan is the one who's behind every attack against Christians. But by saying that, it also communicates an idea that Satan is omnipresent or omnipotent, which is false. So there has to be a... A, a balance in all of this without sacrificing different areas of truth. Often error comes because one area of truth is overemphasized from another area of truth. And so tonight we're going to look at demonism and fortune telling. Now last time we looked at this map and saw the that we're in the middle or the beginning actually of Paul's second missionary journey. He left uh, the area down in central uh, central Turkey, uh, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, Pisidian, Antioch, headed north looking for new openings and opportunities for the gospel. And in, in some way, God the Holy Spirit shut him down so that it, he could not go into Asia on his left or into uh, Bithynia on his right up towards the north. And God the Holy Spirit directed him through Mycenae to Troas, there he had a vision of a man in Macedonia calling him over to Macedonia, which is in the northern part of what we see now as modern Greece. And this is the area we see in the northern part of this map. They took a ship from uh, Troas, uh, stopped at the island of Samothrace briefly, came to the seaport of Neapolis here, um, here, and then went to uh, 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 Philippi, as it's pronounced in Greek, or Philippi, and this is where uh, he made his initial contact with a group of God-fearers who are praying probably near the creek or the stream, we'd call it a creek in Texas, Trinities. There was a, another river, the Ganges, it was a little further away, but tradition sees it at this spot on the um, Trinities uh, River there in, in uh, Philippi. Now, another thing happened that we're told about is that the second personage emphasized in Paul's ministry is another woman, which and this one is a slave girl. Now, in Greek culture and in uh, some of Jewish culture, the uh, some of the most uh, looked down upon 
people in the society were women and slaves. And so the first person to come to salvation in Philippi was a woman, was a uh, woman uh, merchant, Lydia. And the second is this woman slave girl who has a spirit of divination, as we will see. Verse 16 says, it happened as we went to prayer. So this is probably the uh, next uh, next Sabbath. He's already had the first Sabbath where he met Lydia. This would be the next Sabbath. It happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us. Now, this is this is a foundation of a problem we have uh, that's developed in the whole theology of demonism and demon possession is that in English we've developed this vocabulary uh, where we talk about these things as demon possession. These activities of demons on people is either demon possession or demon influence. The word demon possession is a poor word choice in English today. In the time of um, the King James translation, the the concept of possession had the idea of someone inhabiting something, and that fits the biblical idea of demon possession, which is defined as a demon uh, internally controlling a person or taking up residence inside of a person's body. So demon possession in the idea of inhabiting something is a valid concept, but too often today the word possess doesn't convey that nuance in modern language. Possess usually conveys the idea of ownership. And so many people have uh, distorted views of this this doctrine from Scripture because they, when they hear that word possess, they think ownership, and they think that demon possession means that a demon or Satan owns you. And that's not the idea from the Greek at all. In fact, in the Greek, there's no word for possession at all. That, that was just an English word that was used to try to convey this idea of demonic uh, habitation within a body. So that's not a good choice of words. We're told uh, the translation reads, A certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, brought her, and she brought her masters much profit, much profit by fortune-telling. Now, the word here uh, translated possessed with a spirit of divination is literally, in, tra- translated literally from the Greek, is that she had or she was a certain slave girl having, and it's the Greek word echo, which simply means to have something. So if you if you own a Bible, you have a Bible, you have a car, you have this, you have that. So it's something she had, something related to it. So it's a very broad word. It's not a very technical term. Uh, having a spirit, uh, a puthanos spirit. Puthanos is the Greek word for python. And a large uh, python was also a, a symbol of this of this spirit. And especially at the oracle uh, at Delphi, who was a priestess, the oracle was a priestess, uh, at a temple in, in Delphi in uh, southern, uh, southern Achaia, uh, had as a had had this python with her in, in the legend the python was destroyed by by Ap- the god Apollo 
but we'll get into some of that a little bit later on. So this is, this became a term in Greek for uh, someone who was demon-possessed, someone who was controlled internally by a demon. Now at, at Delphi, and we'll get into this a little more later on, what would happen is the, the priestess would take her seat over this hole in the ground and smoke came up through this hole. It was some sort of a, a, a thermal connection deep into the ground that, that's been closed up uh, probably through various earthquakes long since. But when this happened, then this spirit would control her and she would utter these, these, uh, prophecies, and she would do it in some sort of ecstatic utterance, some sort of a glossolalia. It wasn't a known language. Nobody could understand her. That's how it would come out, and then it would be, quote, translated uh, afterwards. This is typical of the counterfeit of what of a gift that God gives later on, uh, the gift of tongues. It's no wonder that the Corinthians, who were just across the Gulf of Corinth from Delphi, got so confused about the gift of tongues because it was similar to what appeared to be going on with the Oracle of Delphi speaking in this kind of ecstatic, uh, ecstatic speech, uh, that the, where the gods were speaking, uh, through her and taking possession of her. So this is the same language that was used to describe the activity of, uh, of this, uh, uh, python. When, uh, uh, Apollo defeated the, the, in the legend of Apollo defeats the, uh, the python and then, uh, embodies or takes the form of the python and then he speaks to her. And there were other things that went on. For example, the, uh, uh, Dionysius would come, Apollo would go back to where, wherever he was from, usually in the legends back to Anatolia, which is Turkey, and then another Anatolian god, uh, Bacchus or Dionysius would come and also, uh, indwell the priestess there at Delphi. And there's, so there's a lot of different connections there. What's interesting is the background of Dionysian worship and the use of glossolalia and ecstatic utterance in that. So it, it, this was a confusion uh, throughout uh, the Greek Greek world because of their pagan their pagan religion. What we're told here is that this girl followed Paul and us. Us there notice the first person plural. Luke is writing, so this indicates Luke is with him and uh, has been with him since Troas. And this includes the party of Silas and Timothy as well. So this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So the, 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 this demon possessed girl is making a true statement. But the apostle Paul doesn't want his message validated by a demon. He understands what's really going on. Even though what she is saying is true, he doesn't need to have his message and his apostleship validated by this this priestess of false religion. And so eventually he becomes very irritated at this. Verse 18, this she did for many days. So this went on. Paul had a certain amount of patience, but after a while, day in and day out, all day long, being uh, receiving this announcement from this demon-possessed fortune teller, 
got to him, and he was greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit. Notice in these uh, contexts where a demon is cast out, that Paul and in the Gospels, Jesus addresses the spirit. Spirit is the Greek word pneuma, same word that's used of the Holy Spirit, same word that is used for various attitudes. Somebody may be said to have a spirit of anger. That's not talking about a demon of anger that's influencing you. It's talking about just a mental attitude. So that word pneuma has a lot of different uh, nuances. It has a wide range of meaning. You'll find often today in what I call neo, the doctrines of neo-spiritual warfare is these ideas that, that you really don't have a problem with, with uh, 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 lust for alcohol. You don't have a problem with uh, the sin of drunkenness. You don't have a problem with the sin of anger. You don't have a problem with the sin of bitterness. You have a spirit of bitterness, a spirit of anger, a spirit of jealousy. It's not really your fault. That's a demon that's influencing you. And so in a lot of the neo-spiritual warfare uh, terminology, it's, it's basically the old Flip Wilson line, the devil made me do it. It's the, this demon that's doing it. I, it's not my fault. There's a spirit of jealousy affecting me, a spirit of lust affecting me, and, and so it's not my fault. And the solution then is to cast out uh, the demon, and then I won't have this sin problem anymore. And what it reveals is a shallow view of sin and and total depravity. And that's why uh, that comes out of the Arminian uh, traditional Arminian theology of Pentecostalism. Always had a problem. Has always had a problem with that. And it's not really my fault. It's something else because if I'm redeemed, I shouldn't do this. And and this this false belief that Christians aren't going to be susceptible to certain kinds of sin. You see a similar problem on the other end of the spectrum with lordship salvation. Uh, for them, it's not that you uh, lose your salvation, but it's that you weren't ever truly saved. Christians have always had this problem with Christians who commit horrible sin or continue to sin after they're saved. And yet the Bible makes it very clear that Christians continue to sin unless they are going to take in the Word of God and walk by the Holy Spirit. So Paul addresses the demon and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's not Paul addressing the issue. He doesn't have an attitude that it's him. It's, it's in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And I want you to notice the language here, uh, the Greek word here. We'll look at the language in a, in a few, few minutes. But the language here, the word to come out, is the Greek verb ex erkomai. It's the verb erkomai, which means to come, and a preposition ex that's, that's affixed as a prefix to the word, and it means to come out. That's very important because the technical language in demon possession, this kind of demonic activity, is language of going in and coming out. So he said, uh, Paul says, uh, for, for, commands the demon to come out of her, and then we're told, and he came out that very hour, an idiom for immediately. And so twice Luke uses that term, ex erkomai, emphasizing that what's going on here, having a puthana spirit, 
is the same as having this spirit indwelling or inside the person because what the demon has to do is to come out of the person. Now, this is going to be important. Just remember this. We have to, I want to go through the story, and then we'll look at the doctrine and terminology at the end. Now, what happens is once this Puthana spirit uh, evacuates her body, then she doesn't have the power to tell the future anymore. Uh, she's left uh, empty, and but, but freed spiritually. She's no long, longer under the dominion and control of this evil spirit. And in verse 19, though, this affects her masters because they have now lost the golden goose. And there's no more money going to come in because she can't tell the future. When her master saw that their hope and profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. That's the agora. Dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, the picture that I've got up here with this with this verse is of the remains the archaeological remains of the Agora in Philippi. And so we see the forum is located here. The ancient Agora is this green area here that hasn't been excavated. Over here we have a basilica. This is a Byzantine-era church, and there's a number of uh, other Byzantine uh, artifacts here and, uh, and ruins because the, the Byzantines came in and built this city, was a live city for many centuries, and continued to grow and expand on top of what was there during the Roman period of, of the first century. And so this is the area of the Agora here, and this was the forum, and this was probably somewhere the area where they had a, 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 a place where they had a bema seat where the judges would come and would hear cases and try cases. So that's what happens. Paul and Silas are now arrested. They're dragged into the marketplace before the authorities where they will go through a trial, and we'll get to that uh, after we finish this study. We have to understand what's going on here in relationship to believers. So the first thing I want to talk about is activities that are associated with demonism. Now, over the years, we've all heard and read about certain kinds of activities that are sponsored by Satan. They're mentioned in the scripture as, as different activities that are associated. I'm, gonna, I'm being very specific on my use of that word there. They're associated with demonism. However, in what I call pop demonism, it's often presented that if you get involved in these activities, you can, quote, pick up a demon. You go into a seance with someone who's bringing up the dead. Oh, that's demonic activity. You may walk out of there with a demon. Uh, you get involved reading horoscopes and astrology. You may pick up a demon. You may become demon-influenced that way. I remember reading uh, one of, Hal, I think it was Hal Lindsey's second book, Satan is alive and well in planet Earth, much of which was good, but there were several things in that book where Hal began to slip out of bounds, one of which was his, he came out of the closet on his approval of, of tongues. And uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that Hal actually wrote the cessationist, that's the technical theological term used today to describe those who believe that tongues have ceased, they're cessationists, and that Hal actually wrote the cessationist 
uh, policy for Campus Crusade when he was with Campus Crusade back in the 60s. But he came under the same uh, influence of experience in a lot of his ministry, and he couldn't explain what was going on. So, but he he lost his his uh, moorings in the scripture and shifted his position in the mid 70s to say that that well, 99 percent of what goes on under the guise of tongues really isn't. Uh, but I'm not going to put God in a box. You know, the same, this mistake is made over and over again. Nobody's putting God in a box. That's a misrep. Does this, does God put himself in a box and has he said so in scripture? That's the issue. Has God says that he's limiting the way he is uh, operating at different times in history and has he revealed that in his word? That's the issue. Has God revealed that he's limiting himself? It's not that theologians are putting a limitation on God. That's just just one of those debaters' techniques to uh, throw people off off course. So uh, we have these ideas, though. I mean, in that particular book, as I was saying, uh, Hal told various anecdotes, and I believe one of them was about a couple where they had had all these things happen to them and come under the influence of demonic activity, and they had been traveling in the Far East, and they had brought back a Buddhist statue, and there was some sort of demon that was attached to that Buddhist statue, and now this demon was causing things to happen in their life and around their house. That's the kind of sort of uh, voodoo, black magic, superstitious nonsense that has entered into Christianity. And, and I have been to some spiritual warfare-type conferences back in the 80s where this kind of thing was taught, it makes you, it scares people. And there's not a, there is not an attitude of fear for the Christian. We do, we, we're surrounded by demons all the time. We're surrounded by demonic influence all the time. There's demonic influence in the TV shows you watch, the news shows that you watch, even on Fox News. There's, uh, Demonic influence everywhere, because demonic influence is the arrogant thinking of Satan, as we'll see. It's it's not necessarily the the, the kind of stuff that's portrayed in films like The Exorcist. These are these are the most extreme things. Satan wants people to think that he's going to offer them happiness and joy and peace and prosperity. He, he, he this is just a diversion. All this kind of uh, uh, superstitious uh, nonsense that you see in the films and that are portrayed in in some Christian circles. So we have to go back and understand that that there 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 are certain activities that are associated with demonism that may give opportunities for demons to to express themselves in divination and other things like this. But when we look at some of the examples in the scripture of uh, a, ch- a child in a couple of cases that's uh, being controlled by a demon, being thrown in the fire. Let me tell you, that child probably was not uh, going to the fortune teller and having his fortune told. He wasn't involved in following Ouija boards. He had been demon-possessed con- demon since a very young age, since infancy. The fallen world is under the control of Satan. And what opens people to the demonic is carnality. And you're born spiritually dead, 
and you're under the influence of your under the power and 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 uh, you're a slave to your sin nature and so any of us come under the the influence of demonism from the moment that we're born and there are just things that happen for unbelievers that may lead to certain kinds of demon control or de- demonic what we call demonic possession i think it's very very rare I don't see this as a major problem because, as we'll see, it's not even mentioned in any of the epistles in the New Testament. You can read from Romans to Jude, there's not one mention of demon possession. And yet the Scripture testifies that the Scripture is sufficient to teach us how to handle every problem. So these church-age epistles are written to teach Christians how to handle all the problems of life. If demon possession for Christians is the problem that many people today say it is, then why is the Bible so loudly silent? If it's a problem, it would be mentioned at least once in these in the epistles. It's not mentioned at all. So if it's not mentioned at all, the only thing we can conclude is it's not a problem. It's not an issue. The Bible, the New Testament says almost nothing about it. The only time we see these these huge activities of, uh, of the demons are during the incarnation and during the end times in Daniel's 70th week in the tribulation. We don't see this happening very much other than a few times in Acts, and we see other kinds of supernatural things, the miracles, intervention of God, intervention of the Holy Spirit. These things happened with greater frequency at the beginning of the book of Acts. But if you track this, their mention as you go through the book of Acts, they become less and less and less until the last 10 chapters or so of Acts, there's virtually no mention of these kinds of things. So first point, idolatry, which is the worship of any god, the worship of any god from the worship of self to the worship of material things. Greed is idolatry, Paul says in Colossians uh, Colossians 3. The worship of material things to the worship of various deities, including Allah and the God of Mormonism. I just, as I wrote that today, I thought Allah is a, uh, is a cognate of what Hebrew word? El the plural of which is Elohim. What is the name of the, of the God that the Mormons worship? Elohim. That's how they refer to him most of the time is Elohim, which is just a generic word for God, like the English word G-O-D. Yahweh is, and it's distortion as Jehovah. The reason I say that's a distortion is because the Hebrew is four consonants. Y-H-W-H or J-H-V-H, depending on how you uh, express the Y and the W. Uh, in modern, it's, I was talking to somebody this last week that it's funny how in modern evangelical seminaries like at Dallas, they always pronounce the Vav, notice I always pronounce it with a V, uh, as a W. They call it the Wa. But in modern Hebrew, the Wa is always pronounced like the German W. It's pronounced like a V. Except for, and, and if you take Hebrew from anybody who's Jewish, they pronounce the W as a V. They don't pronounce it as a W. And so in, in, uh, 
In, in the Hebrew, it's YWHW, but it's usually transliterated as y, YV, um, uh, HV. Uh, no, YHVH. Um, and that's where you get this Jehovah. The same thing happens with the Y. It's written as a J. And so you had these three consonants, J-H, V-H. And in, in the Hebrew Bible, there weren't any consonants. But the Masoretes put the consonants from the Hebrew word Elohim, or excuse me, Adonai, under the consonants for uh, Yahweh to remind the reader not to mention the name of God, but to read instead Adonai. Now, in modern contemporary Judaism, they usually read Hashem, the name. Uh, some some will read Adonai, but it's usually more common for them to use Hashem for God instead of uh, even Adonai. So Jehovah is a mix of the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai, so it's kind of a distorted, uh, mixed-up name of God that you don't find in the Bible. But uh, it's interesting that Elo- this term Elohim is the... <clears throat> foundation for both the God of uh, Islam and the God of Mormonism. Just think that's interesting. They've distorted God. It's just another idolatrous system. Now, what does the Bible say about idolatry? Exodus 23 through 5, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You know uh, worship of anything in the creation, as part of creation. You shall not bow to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, etc. Now, Romans one twenty five talks about uh, the p- pagan masses of those who have rejected the uh, invisible witness of God in his creation, and says that they have exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the basic definition of idolatry. You're worshipping something in creation, whether it's yourself, whether it's your ideas, whether it's a something you made out of wood or metal or stone, you're worshiping something in the creation, you're worshiping nature, you're worshiping money, you're worshiping um, intellectual ideas, something like that. But the worship of idols is not neutral. That's not just a stone that they're worshiping. That's not just a wood figure that they're worshiping that has no significance. For Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, after uh, again, New Testament uh, repetition of the command to flee from idolatry. In verse 19, he says, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. See, there is something associated with those false gods. There are demons associated with those false gods. And if you're worshiping a false god... You're buying into a demonic system of worship, and many of these false religions have their ideas and their empowerment coming ultimately from demons. 
demons are, we'll get into this a little more, demons are fallen angels. They were originally created holy and righteous with all of the angels. When the highest of the angels, uh, who is called Lucifer, which is kind of a Latin made-up name also, uh, but we usually know who we're talking about, so we use that term. Uh, when when uh, the highest of the angels, uh, known before he fell as Lucifer, uh, Hillel ben Shahar in the Hebrew, the son of uh, the morning star, the son of the dawn, uh, when he rebelled against God, he influenced a, a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion against God. So that rebellion, this this antagonism to the to the authority of God, is the core of demonism. That is the core of demonic thinking. That is the core of anything that is satanic. And so we're going to see that in just a minute. So uh, the worship of any kind of false god is in rebellion against God, and therefore that is demonic, and it is associated with demon, demons and demonism. And so Paul says you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, verse 21, and you cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. These are categorically opposed to one another. Okay, so the first point is idolatry is prohibitive. Idolatry everybody's been involved in idolatry. Everybody in this room's been involved in idolatry. Everybody's worshipped self. Everybody's worshipped money. Everybody's worshipped something in the creation at some point for some reason. And that is the basic orientation of the sin nature is idolatry. So that, and to that level, we're all involved in some kind of demon influence. The second principle is, therefore, any human thought system that is not related to the worship of the one true living God, any human thought system that isn't biblical, is in fact the worship of demons and is demonic and is demon influenced thought. Those are the only options. Because what's at the root of the worship of God is humility toward God. And anything else is idolatry and is the thinking of Satan and is comparable to the rebellion of the demons. And we see this in 1 Samuel 15. What's, hap- what's the background in 1 Samuel 15? 1 Samuel 15 is the t- episode when Saul's rebellion against God has finally come uh, to its climax in Saul's life. Saul has been increasingly uh, dominated by his sin nature for probably 15, almost 20 years. He was never really that uh, focused on his relationship to God, and he's in a battle where God directs him to destroy the Amalekites, the Amalekites being a traditional enemy of Israel. They, they've met... Uh, they created a metaphor out of Amalekites in the in the Jewish community, such that any enemy of Israel is defined as Amalek today. So you will hear them talk about uh, Ahmadinejad as Amalek, and they don't mean that literally. They just use that metaphorically. Uh, the Amalekites have become a, a metaphor for any enemy of Israel, but the ancient Amalekites were an ethnic group that was the first group to attack the Israelites when they came out of, of Egypt. And they continued, and they were migratory. They were uh, basically desert pirates uh, in the ancient world. 
and they were a plague on all of the different civilizations in the Middle East, and they are attacking the southern border of, of, uh, of, of Judah. And so Saul is directed by God through Samuel to go out and to destroy them, to kill every man, woman, child, and to kill all of the livestock. It's the last true part of the of the biblical holy war that began uh, with Joshua's destruction of the Canaanites at the beginning of Joshua. But what did Saul do? Saul kills everybody, but he keeps a few alive, and he keeps their king alive, who is Agag. And uh, and he keeps some of their cattle. We're going to have a little plunder. We ought to get something out of this. Saul couldn't figure out why he needed to kill everyone. And so Samuel, in this great scene, and there was a, a film that was done on uh, King David, on David back in the uh, uh, back in the eighties. And there's a, there, I love this one scene. They did a fabulous job dramatizing this. Where, where Saul is there and Agag is there and Samuel comes, uh, bursting into the tent and he is, uh, accusing Saul and said, what is this bleeding that I'm hearing? What, what are these people that I'm seeing? You are supposed to kill everybody and he whirls around and he grabs Saul's sword and in just one slick movement just whirls around and decapitates Ahag, Agag. And Agag's head just bounces across the floor. And that's exactly what the scriptures described. This is the ro- part of the role of the prophet of God, not the pastor. <laughs> okay, different dispensation. You know, Samuel's not out of control. Samuel is, in, he is God's enforcer, the enforcer of the law. He is the, the, that's the role of the prophet. And then he says to, accuses uh, Saul of his rebellion and he says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. This is a powerful verse. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Why is rebellion like the sin of witchcraft? It is because Satan's original sin was rebellion against the authority of God, and that is at the root of everything. That's what is at the root of satanic thought. Satanic thought has influenced Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And just think about it. What happens in the Garden of Eden? Satan comes along. He possesses or he indwells this this beautiful creature, this serpent, and he comes up and he talks to Eve and he says, well, did God really say this? Implying, is this really true? Does God really have your best interests in mind? And gets her talking and, and as soon as he gets her talking, she immediately starts making mistakes. And, well, God prohibited us from, from eating or touching the fruit. And one thing goes to another and you all know the story and, and Eve eats of the fruit. What's happened here? This is satanic influence. This is demon influence in its initial form in the Garden of Eden. And the result of it is sin. Now, it's, it's, it's just whenever we are influenced to think like Satan thinks, which is arrogance towards God and antagonism towards God and rebellion, it's demonism. It's demon influence. Demonism is a broad, broad term. And it covers both demon influence as well as demon possession. And on the low end of the spectrum, it's a form of demon influence to act like Satan and think like Satan. 
So rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Stubbornness is resisting the authority of God. And then the, the condemnation, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Now, this is First Samuel 15. Saul doesn't die until the end, until the end of First Samuel. And at the end of First Samuel, uh, he commits suicide on Mount Gilboa. So this connects us to the principle, any thought system that rejects the authority of God is demonic. It is the rejection of the worship of the one true living God, and therefore it's the worship of demons, witchcraft, and it's that's demon-influenced thought. Third point, when God, <clears throat> when God in his control of history is rejected, that is in the in the pagan world, in the unbelieving world, not just not limited to the pagan world, but in the unbelieving world, they reject the idea that there is a God or that God controls history. Once you create that vacuum and God isn't in control anymore, you've got to find somebody, some way to have control because otherwise life is unbearably chaotic and and it's everything is just run, runs amok and we have to feel like there's some sort of control. So as part of that, uh, idolatrous humans seek other avenues to try to regain control of their life. And this may take a number of different forms and does, but some forms are more overtly demonic than other forms. And among these are various forms of fortune-telling. We want to know the future so that we can control what happens. If we're going to make, if something bad's going to happen, we want to try to control things so something good will happen instead. It's, if God's not in control, we have to be in control, just a bunch of little control freaks. Divination is the attempt to foresee or foretell future events in order to control the circumstances of one's life. Forms of divination include astrology, not astronomy, but astrology, which is where you try to uh, tell the uh, predict certain personality types by what sign they're a person of the zodiac a person is born under, and try to foretell certain future events that will happen. Uh, palmistry, reading the lines of a person's uh, palm, that this indicates their personality type. No, I mean, you keep saying personality type because that's real big today in psychology. But personality type ideas originated in demonic thought. All of this goes back to people trying to control their life rather than trusting God to control their life. Uh, dowsing, which is using um, using branches of a tree to foretell the future, tarot cards, reading horoscopes, necromancy, many other things. So these are the, basically uh, the different kinds of activities that are used in order to uh, somehow get in touch with the other side to find out what's going to happen uh, in the future. One example that's given in the, in the Old Testament of Divine guidance, pagan divine guidance uh, through demonism is uh, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has just uh, significantly defeated the Egyptian pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho, at the Battle of Carchemish. Uh, no, that wasn't Pharaoh Necho. There was another Battle of Carchemish. When he defeated uh, the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish, the question for him was, should he give chase and pursue the defeated Egyptian army, or should he 
besiege Jerusalem. And so he called for his wise men to come and tell him about the future. And so we're told about this in Ezekiel 21.21, For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads. So he's got a decision to make. Uh, to use divination. So that's the, um, that's the broad category. He shakes the arrows. That's uh, where you would sort of like uh, throwing down uh, sticks or something, and you mark one arrow, and you're going to throw the arrows down in whichever direction the marked arrow points. That's the direction you go. That's called belomancy. He consults the images. These were little uh, figurines of gods, little baby idols called teraphim. And there were households had their little teraphim. If you remember in, in Genesis, when um, Jacob finally gets the opportunity to leave and to flee from uh, Laban, and he takes his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and their handmaids with him. Uh, Rachel is on her uh, camel, and she's got her teraphim with her, and Laban chases them and accuses uh, Jacob of stealing the family idols. That's where the power was. It's all a lot of paganism. That's uh, the teraphim. So Nebuchadnezzar had him shake out the arrows. That gave him one answer. But, well, let's make sure. Let's confirm that answer. So then they consulted the teraphim. Not sure exactly how they did that. And then they looked at the liver. They would kill a chicken or a small uh, mammal. They would cut out the liver, and then they would throw it on the ground, and they would read the liver, the veins, the color, the shape, all of that, and that would give them some idea of what the future would entail. And see, this was all involved in a lot of mumbo-jumbo on the part of these these priests because they could make it say anything. There was a, There's always a certain amount of, of nebulousness to whatever the fortune tellers tell you. They read you, they read your mind, I mean, not your mind, but your body language, and they, they're good, they know people, and they're somewhat empathetic, and so they, they're good at guessing what people are, are doing and reading, uh, reading your, um, you know, the expressions on your face and everything, and so they make up a, a good line that's usually ambiguous enough to where you can read anything you want to, uh, into what they say. And so they had these three forms that uh, were used by by Nebuchadnezzar to figure out what to do, and the bottom line was that he uh, besieged Jerusalem. Now, what about some scripture related to this? This is very important because the prohibitions reflect a reality. It's not just the Mosaic law. This reflects the universal principles embodied in the Mosaic law because they relate to the overall universal problem that we face in this life, and that is living in the devil's world as part of the angelic conflict. Uh, Leviticus 19.26, you shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. Deuteronomy 18.10, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That was the practice of child sacrifice with uh, in, in the ancient world where they would take the... Uh, uh, Moloch was the god they worshipped, and he had a big furnace in his belly, and they would, uh, and his arms were outstretched, and they would place their infants in his arms, and he would be immolated alive uh, through a burnt offering. 
And this is associated, we all think that's pretty evil. Well, in God's eyes, that's just as bad as someone who practices witchcraft or is a soothsayer or who interprets omens or a sorcerer. We want to say, oh, no, 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 sacrificing a child is much worse. Let's get our values from the Bible. It's just as bad as all these other things. These other things are horrible. As well, Luke 19.31, give no regard to mediums or, and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And then Leviticus 20.27, 20, a man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits. Uh, there's that same idea of having a demon uh, shall surely be put to death. So God viewed this as as serious as murder or being a false prophet. They shall be They shall be stoned. Now, this divination was widely known and widely practiced in the ancient world. The picture on the screen is the picture looking down on the Temple of Jupiter at Delphi. This is where the Oracle of Delphi plied her trade. Um, one of the stories from the ancient world is that Creasus, you've heard the phrase, rich is Creasus, he was a king of Lydia, which was a kingdom in the 6th century. That's the period of the 500s, the same period that starts with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, ends with the Jews coming back to Judea, rebuilding the temple around 516. The uh, Babylonians are the prime power at the beginning of the 6th century. By the end of the 6th century, the Persians are the great power. This is the time period we're looking at, the end of the 6th century, uh, Creus has witnessed the rise of Persia under Cyrus the Great, and as Cyrus's power grew, uh, Creus felt very threatened. So he sought out knowledge of the future and what he should do, and he sent out messengers to various nations seeking a legitimate diviner, someone who could tell them the fu- future. And what each of these uh, individuals was supposed to do was at the appointed day, the appointed hour, they would ask the question, what is Creasus doing? And whoever gave the correct answer, that was the one who could uh, foretell the future. One messenger went to Delphi, asked the question of the, uh, of the oracle, and the oracle responded by saying, oh, and what was happening at this time was that Creasus had gone down to the beach uh, where he's built a fire, he's uh, butchered a, a tortoise, and he's uh, also butchered a lamb, and he is uh, boiling them in a brass cauldron with a brass lid. So the oracle is asked the question, what is Creasus doing? And the oracle gives the answer, I can count the sand. See, he's on the beach. I can measure the ocean. Uh, I have ears for the silent and know what the dumb man meaneth. Lo, on my sense there striketh the smell of a shell-covered tortoise boiling now on a fire with the flesh of a lamb in a cauldron, brass is the vessel below and brass the cover above. So Creasus determines this is the legitimate fortune teller, and uh, so he sends a messenger back with the question, should he attack the Persians? And then in typical divination format, the oracle responds with an ambiguous statement. Uh, if Creasus crosses the Halley's River... He will overturn a mighty empire. So Creasus thinks that means that he will defeat the Persians when what it actually means is that he will get defeated. But see, it could go either way. So whatever Creasus did, whatever the outcome, the, the oracle would be right. 
So that was the same. Now today we have uh, many of the same kinds of things going on. Many of them have been debunked. In, the, in, in America since the mid-19th century, there's been a, a huge rise in the popularity of spiritism. Uh, Mary uh, Todd Lincoln was holding seances in the White House uh, after the loss of their son and that uh, trying to get in touch with him. There were stories about Houdini trying to get in touch with his mother. This went on for years. He, Houdini distrusted all of the, uh, uh, all of the uh, necromancers. In fact, he set up various traps and would expose them, and there have been several others. There was another uh, one of these kinds of magicians in the late 20th century named the Amazing Randy, and he set up all kinds of traps, and nobody ever passed the test. They would put out huge rewards, uh, many thousands of dollars to anyone who could prove that they actually got in touch with the dead, and nobody ever ever passed it. So these kinds of things uh, seem to be extremely rare. Uh, they don't seem to be proven anywhere. There are a lot of stories, but hard evidence is, is, uh, is really, really lacking. And so we have uh, the Oracle of Delphi. There's another uh, portrait of how the uh, Oracle would sit over the hole in the ground. The smoke would come up uh, through her. So uh, sixth point, as we wrap up, another form of divination exposed in the Bible is that of necromancy, which is consulting the dead through mediums and witches. Two verses from the Old Testament prohibit this, Isaiah 8:19, And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. See what would happen in, in the, in the uh, Hebrew, the word was an ove spirit and translated into Greek as, with the word in gastromuthos. Uh, in, in, translate that into English as I-N, gastro, the mouth, our, our gastro would be the uh, intestines, the stomach, muthos. Okay, and so what? What? what that, that's it was a compound word, and it was the idea of uh, of throwing the voice. And so, an angostra muthos demon. Actually, what would happen here? We think of of a spirit coming in and speaking, but the the medium would speak, and then a voice would come out of the ground, the voice of the dead. And so that's the, that's how they would function, and they would hear these whispers and mutterings, and then the uh, necromancer, the medium, or the witch would interpret that. So Isaiah says, When they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? And then Isaiah 29.4, you shall be, uh, Israel is condemned because they've been going to mediums and wizards trying to find help from somewhere other than the Bible. You shall be brought down, you shall speak out of the ground, your speech shall be low, out of the dust. See, the voice comes up from the ground. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. And so this sets us up now for understanding one of those great episodes from the Old Testament which is when Saul went to the witch at Endor and uh, to call up Samuel because Samuel has died, Samuel has been his guidance, and now he wants to know what to do in this upcoming battle uh, with the Philistines. And this was one of the most surprising days in the life of the witch of Endor, but we're going to save that for next time. So we'll come back and start with 1 Samuel 28 next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, be reminded that
that you are in control. First John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, and that we have a relationship with you, and there is no power on heaven or on earth that can truly threaten us, that Satan is under your control and authority ultimately, and that uh, you're just giving him time to uh, work out his plans to demonstrate that he can never fulfill his ambitions and he can never control uh, creation. It's impossible. Father, we pray that we will come from this study with great confidence in you and your word and no fear of, the, uh, of demons or Satan, uh, what they can do to us, because we are protected by your power and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.